Welcome to the Pencils and Lipstick Podcast, a weekly podcast for writers. Grab a cup of coffee, perhaps some paper and pen, and enjoy an interview with an author, a chat with a writing tool creator, perhaps a conversation with an editor or other publishing expert, as well as Kat's thoughts on writing and her own creative journey. You'll laugh, you'll cry, well, hopefully not actually cry, but you will probably learn something. And I hope you'll be inspired to write. Because as I always say, you have a story, you should write it down. This is Pencils and Lipstick. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Pencils and Lipstick. I am Kat Caldwell. And today is December 2nd. It is a Friday and it is gray and dreary here, but I hope that you're getting uh, maybe some sunshine or maybe needed rain and some snow, maybe, (laughs) wherever you are. This week, I have an interview for you. I'm really excited to bring to you Sally Stevens. She has written a memoir of her life. She is a poet, a lyricist, a music writer. She's what she calls a session singer and has worked in Hollywood and on television and on stage um, since the 1960s. So this is a little bit of a different interview um, for you guys. It focuses a lot on her life and... um, just sort of how she has managed the creativity side of her life. I think it's important for us to to look at other creative artists, not necessarily just writers, and maybe learn something from them. And in the interview, she talks about actually starting to attend the Iowa Summer Writing Conferences, which blew me away. And so, of course, we talk about that because I was extremely jealous uh, and have decided since that um, once my kids leave the house, I'm I'm going to go. Um, but I want to talk to you guys a little bit about, about that, about finding another um, outlet for your creativity. And I know I talk about this a lot and I talk about it with Sally, um, but I came across a blog post by Janice Hardy. If you don't know her, she is um, the creator of Fiction University. She's been on the show. Um, she was on the show in in the summertime, and I'll have the link in the show notes because, of course, I'm unprepared with that number right now. But um, she talks about attending a romance conference, a writing workshop. Um, and there's a difference between, I shouldn't say conference, a workshop, because there's a difference between conference and workshop. Workshop is where you go and you are prepared to write. Um, and a conference is usually going to listen to people um, talk about writing, talk about maybe marketing, talk about other aspects of the the craft or the market. And so she talks about being in a romance workshop And if you don't know, Janice has YA books. She has quite a few. She has a lot of nonfiction books. Um, So I was a little bit surprised that she had said that she um, attended a romance workshop. And yet it makes tons of sense because we should be learning from other writers. It doesn't really matter what genre they're in because we can um, learn about their genre. They definitely have something to say. And I was... Listening to Joanna Penn, um, her her podcast this last week had an interview with John Truby, and he was talking about how most big blockbuster, you know, I say that and 
you know, with like quotes right there, but well-known books or well-received books or, or stories are cross genres. You know, they are a horror with a love story. That would be interesting. I can't think of an example of that right now, but, or they're, you know, horror with sci-fi or they are a love story with adventure. You know, they are these like cross genres. And so it makes sense that we would be open to attending workshops um, from people who don't write in our genre. So Janice talks, and there will be a link in the show notes so you can read this, um, about getting to know your characters. And this resonated with me because I am um, writing a nonfiction chapter right now about figuring out your characters and digging deep into your characters. And what I did this past year um, to find my character, because I figured out that, you know, Tread, who is now named Tristan, but you know, whatever, um, was kind of like coming out as flat. Um, or as I described earlier today, no personality, which is terrible. Like who wants to read that book? (laughs) And I knew, no, you know, I knew that I had this problem. Um, so tips to getting to know your characters. This is, there are a lot of exercises out there and this is an interesting one. It says, that the romance author Susan Elizabeth Phillips in this workshop that Janice attended gave the tip to list the contents of your character's purse or, you know, backpack um, or briefcase, I guess, you know. It's, it's basically an exercise in deciding what does your character feel is important enough to carry around with them. It's not like this is an exercise that will necessarily end up in your book as most exercises about getting to know your character. You know, I talked during Daniel, um, David Daniel Wallace's summit about, about finding my way back to, to writing cornered this past year and how I had to do certain exercises and, you know, not all of them had to do with writing, but there are tons of exercises that you can do with stepping across the desert. I started writing letters between the, um, the two main characters after the, you know, after the book sort of, and that helped me at that point. And with, um, with this one with cornered, I sort of wrote as though it was a diary with Tristan, like getting back to when he was seven and he is um, seeing his mom and his dad and his brother and sister. And from his point of view at age seven, not as an adult looking back, but that point of view in order to really understand the backstory. Um, And I had always kind of done a little bit of this, but this idea really came from Lisa Crone um, and her book, what it wasn't wired for story. It was the other one, Lisa Crone. Links will be in the show notes, y'all. You know me. Um, when she talks a lot about writing the backstory from the from the first person point of view, and it's not gonna probably end up in your book, but it helps you as a writer. So I just thought that this was an interesting exercise, and I think that I probably will write this for my characters. I am right now spending some time as I write this chapter. Um, and I'll tell you guys more about the, the book that will be coming out that will, that this chapter will be in, but it's, it's, you know, nonfiction and it's about writing and I get the chapter on characters and I'm very pleased to have that 
chapter um, because I find characters fascinating. I find that they are the reason that we read books, you know, and we watch television. And you really have to know your character. And my idea of characters has really changed um, since I started writing seriously. Um, and my my curiosity and my need to find good characters as I'm reading books um, has become more voracious. <laughs> you know, I want a deep character. I want a character that is um, all on the page, like every bit of them. And yet what's interesting is that you can't put that with a lot of words. You have to sort of make the reader see them and feel them and hear them without too much, without too much backstory and without too much um, info dumping. So this exercise of what does your character carry around with them in their purse or their briefcase um, or or in their pocket um, is an interesting exercise for you as a writer. All of these exercises are for you as a writer. They might end up in your book a little bit, um, but more than anything, they are going to help you write the book in a deeper way. Um, I was also talking to a friend of mine, Emma Desi. Some of you might know her. <laughs> she has a fabulous podcast and she's a fabulous coach and writer. So we were talking today and we were talking about being a discovery writer. And I think a lot of times as discovery writers, we don't want to do these exercises because we feel like if we write the book, the story, that um, that is the exercise. And then we don't really need, you know, to do this superfluous exercise. Um, that's the voice in my head. Um, and, and I think that it's, it's not correct to think that way. Um, and maybe border bordering on arrogant because not everything can come out in your book. Um, and if you do write in that way, I think that you run the risk of overwriting to the point of like talking 30,000 words, which is really difficult to then cull because it's not like it's 30,000 words at the beginning or at the end. It's like 30,000 words throughout the entire manuscript and you got to go through and find those words. Um, so what I think is probably more proper for discovery writers um, when I when I bring up exercises like this is to once you get into the book where you're really feeling good about it and yet you know that it could be a little bit deeper. So let's say I, I got through NaNoWriMo. Yay, NaNoWriMo. I got my 50,000 words. Somehow I ended up with 60,000 in the actual manuscript. So obviously I miscounted. So, but whatever, you know, you know, I'm not good at math. So, so, you know, I'm there, I'm like halfway through the book and historical romance is usually around 85,000 to 90,000. Um, and I know that some in the beginning is going to need to be honed or cult completely. But I woke up today after having, you know, worked on that nonfiction. And I thought, well, maybe I should do some of these exercises. Maybe about now is the right time. And so I really worked through my main character's flaw and realized <laughs> that 
I needed to go back and rewrite an entire scene. And then from there, sort of, you know, leave the little Easter eggs um, in the next few chapters and then bring it to this culmination um, where he confronts this one person or he's, you know, makes this choice. So I wouldn't have probably realized that until much later if I hadn't done this exercise. Um, Just realizing that maybe, maybe I was, you know, making him not flawed enough you know, I I'm I really love this character, so I am battling that temptation to make him a really lovable character. Um, so I did do one of these exercises, and I think I'm I'm going to do this one, especially for Carmen, um, who is one of the main characters of the historical fiction. And I think I'm going to do it for Tristan as well, because as you all know, Tristan is giving me lots of trouble and things are going well with him. I am, you know, making my way through the manuscript with all the changes, like that one little change at the beginning caused a lot of changes throughout. Um, but I was thinking about him as well in working on some exercises about his flaw and really, um, really writing it down in, in words, in more concise words and, you know, being able to put it up on my board to remind me <laughs> because every time that I go into a chapter, I need to remember what his sort of flaw is, right? So one of my favorite exercises, as I will remind you all, is to record those thinking moments, those brainstorming moments. For me, it, it's always happening when I'm putting my makeup on, um, <laughs> you know, or cooking, like doing something completely different from writing. All of a sudden I get all these ideas. So what's great about that is that you have your cell phone and almost every single smartphone comes with a recording device. Um, you know, apparently you can record into your email and email it to yourself, but mine... <laughs> came out with the weirdest words ever. So I just recorded it. So (laughs) I'll just put that out there. So record these brainstorming sessions, sit down and write them out. If you can't write them out and you're just thinking about them, make sure that you record them. But head over to Janice Hardy's Fiction University. It's um, JaniceHardy.com. I will have the link in the show notes and check out that exercise. List the content of your character's purse and course, attribute it to Susan Elizabeth Phillips. Um, She came up with it, or at least she used it in her workshop. And I just want to encourage you all, you know, as we go into Christmas, if people are asking you what you want for Christmas, maybe think about taking a workshop. Say, would you, you know, put money towards a workshop? Um, We talk about the Iowa summer workshops that hopefully will be back in 2023 with Sally Stevens today. Um, But there's lots of workshops out there. Uh, And if you're okay with online, there's even more online workshops out there. And speaking of workshops, look at that transition. There is a webinar this Friday that I'm hosting with Sarah Elizabeth Sawyer. She was on the podcast just a few weeks ago, and it is called The Top Questions Fiction Writers Want to Ask About Native Americans. And she is going to go through the top nine questions that she gets a lot from fiction writers. And this um, workshop, this webinar is going to be focused on any 
fiction writer out there. So whether you're a historical fiction writer, um, Sarah talks about during the podcast that a lot of fantasy writers like to base their characters or certain cultures in their books off of Native American um, cultures. So you might want to come if you're a fantasy writer. I personally think that you should come just to sort of learn something new and see what that might mean for your own um, writing, and you never know where the idea of the next book will come from. So I will have links in the show notes as well to sign up for that. It is completely free. Um, Sarah is going to be talking about the course that she has. Um, it sounds like a really great course. Um, there's a lot of praise for it, so I think it's worth you checking out. She's going to have some fun bonuses for people and discounts. So sign up for the webinar. There will be a replay for 24 hours. So if it interests you at all and you can't make it this Friday, December 8th at 1 p.m. Eastern, it's okay. You can watch the replay and still get the bonuses. Um so there's that news as well. Before we go in to the interview today, um, I will be talking to you a little bit about ProWritingAid. I love highlighting the apps and software that I use to make my writing smoother, better, or prepped to go to the editor. And one of those apps is ProWritingAid. ProWritingAid can help you improve your writing quickly and efficiently with thousands of grammar, spelling, and readability improvements delivered in real time as you write. I just connect it with my word processor or even with Scrivener, and I can get real-time data from them. ProWritingAid has more writing reports than any other editing software. The editing tool highlights elements like repetitiveness, vague wording, sentence length variation, over-dependence on adverbs, passive voice, and over-complicated sentence constructions, and so much more. Now, you can't rely solely on ProWritingAid, but it is a great way to see how your writing is improving, where you need to maybe develop it a little bit more, and it gets rid of all those pesky little things before you send it to your actual editor, which helps them save time. And you know if it helps them save time, it helps you save money. I always run my blog posts, my newsletter, my books, everything through ProWritingAid because by the end of the day, my eyes are too tired to see those pesky little problems, whether it's a comma, whether it's a word that changed because I missed the spelling. Whatever it is, ProWritingAid is there for me. If you want to check out this awesome software, just click the links below. There's a link for free resources and there's a link for a discount just for you. I sang that from the sound of music to the Simpsons to South Park and beyond a memoir from Hollywood by Sally Stevens. I sang that is a personal journey behind the scenes into the world of music makers who created the film scores, television music, sound recordings, commercials, and concert evenings over the past 60 years. It's about Sally Stevenson's long singing career that began in 1960 with concert tours, Ray Conniff, Nat King Cole, and others. 
and later solo work in concert with Burt Bacharach. Add to that the 30 years of vocals and main titles for The Simpsons, vocals for Family Guy, vocals on hundreds of films and television scores and sound recordings, plus 22 years as choral director for the Oscars. It's also the personal story of growing up as a his, hers, and theirs family in the 40s and 50s, and how a shy little girl became a second-generation singer in the ever-evolving music business of Hollywood. Well, hello, Sally Stevens. It's so wonderful to have you on the Pencils and Lipstick podcast. How are you doing? I'm doing great, thank you. It's delightful to be here. Wonderful. Before we get into your book, I sang that, From the Sound of Music to Simpsons to South Park and Beyond. I'm very excited. (laughs) Um, Will you tell everyone just a little bit about who you are and where you're from? Sure. Well, I'm I'm, uh, talking to you from Studio City, California, which is uh, generally the area where I grew up and was born. I was born in L.A., and um, I have worked in music, film score, music, television, sound recordings, commercials, all of that, what we call session singing, <clears throat> and some concert work for a long, long time here. <laughs> and um, and I'm still active. I don't know how that has happened, but it happened. <laughs> they won't let you go. <laughs> <laughs> so I know I've been very lucky. I've had a wonderful long journey. And um and uh, it's uh, rainy and lovely here. I'm looking out at my garden. Well, I'm glad you guys are getting rain. You guys are always <laughs> yes. sort of oh, needing need rain. It so, much. <laughs> yeah. so you were born and raised in L.A. Mm-hmm. So, you, mm-hmm. so you've sort of been around the Hollywood, the American sort of, I guess it was a big dream at, at some point to be an actress and to be in the Hollywood scene. Well, you know, I um, bo- both my parents and my stepfather were singers. They were okay. all singers, and my mom worked. They both also worked in film in the but in the like forties, late thirties, forties. Um, they were not uh, vocal contractors. They were not influential in the session <laughs> world. But I'm so sorry about these. I don't know how to shut off the dings. <laughs> it's all right. <laughs> uh, so, but I knew that there was such a thing as a session singer, you mm. know, and. And we are the people that are rarely credited, okay. Uh, unless we're very lucky. But um, it, it's not what I wanted to do originally. Was just what you described. I, I, I had dreams of of being Lucille Ball. She was yeah. my icon when I was a kid, and I wanted to be a songwriter, singer, artist. And I started in that path a little bit, or very early on while I was still at UCLA. But I had a chance to do some session work through people that I would meet along the way. And it was such a such a, a fascinating business, mm. and it was so competitive that if you there was a lot of activity in those days, much more sadly than there is today. But if you didn't show up for something, the the contractor or the producer might find someone they liked better. So you you just had to be there. Wow! So it was very intense in the sixties and seventies. I, I I came across some of my old calendar books, date books from 65, 69, 72, when I was, you know, looking for specific information about the memoir. And as, there were days, most days we would work like from nine to in the morning till 10 at night, six days a week. Oh my gosh. And they were not all big projects. You know, you'd do a demo for a commercial and get paid $43 or something, but it was all union work in those days. And, and it just, you know, one thing kind of led to another. 
So it's been a it's been a very interesting journey. So what's interesting to me is that there is um a lot of times, maybe it's only in America, maybe it's everywhere, where we start out with a really big dream, you know, and mm-hmm. the majority of the big names are probably what attracts us. But underneath mm-hmm. those big names are all the other people who work really hard to put together all of the, the arts. You know, I'm kind of thinking of, as you said, the people who don't get as much credit. So mm-hmm. um, so w- when did that become enough for you? Like, was it just working, 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 like this is paying the bills and one day I will be... Lucille Ball, or or did you come to to accept? Um, well, I, I think I was pretty sure that I never was going to be Lucille Ball, but that um, little voice is so terrible in the back of our minds. Like, no, actually, there's only one. <laughs> I wasn't. I wasn't that brave, you know. Yeah. You, you have to put yourself out there and and be funny and be and assume you're not embarrassing yourself. I never really had mm. that courage much later in my life. But um, I, I was the, the first the first entry into the business. Well, there were kind of two, um, I, and I write about this a little bit in the book. When I was at UCLA, there was a uh, a producer in New York named Leroy Holmes who produced a a, a, a doo-wop version of Over the Rainbow, which for some reason took off and was a, started to be a big hit. And he had done it with a pickup group that, which was just session singers in New York. So he needed to have a group that could go out and be the Bayciders. And that happened through a fellow uh, student friend of mine, Jack Walker, Jackie Walker. And it was a group of three guys and myself. And we recorded the rest of the album. And then we did record hops, which in those days were, you know, um, events on... uh, I don't even know what, what the spaces were. I know we were in El Segundo once. But it was where kids would come up show up and dance to the DJ and then they'd have usually a featured act, which sometimes would be us. Oh, cool. And that was um, fun. And then um, so an age, uh, a manager took me to see Herb Albert. Do you, do you, are you familiar with Herb Albert? And Herb is, Herb Albert is a fabulous musician, producer, wonderful guy who also has had many hits himself with the um Tijuana Brass. Okay. And he started OPM Records and uh, but and Lou Adler produced the Mamas and the Papas and right. uh, all the big artists. At one time before they were both hits, had hits, they were partners in a little office above Sunset Strip. And they were looking for an, a young artist to sing a song that Herb had written and somebody brought me in to meet with them and they thought I would be okay. So he said, do you have a song for the back side, for the B side? And so I went home and wrote one and brought it back, and he liked it better than his. Oh, wow. So he, ended up, he said, go write another one. But I had been writing songs all through high school. Okay. I, I really so he produced a, a single, two songs of mine, that was released on Dot Records, and it got to number 10 in Connecticut, but that's as far as it got. But um, by that time, I had taken my first, like, a group job, and I was going on the road with Ray Conniff for his first um, celebrity tour. And I met people in that first little tour that were doing session work. And when I got back, I, I, you know, was called once in a while. It, and then we did. My husband and I, who I met on that first tour, did a forty-seven one-nighter bus concert tour with Ray Conniff all across the country. Oh my god! And, and it, <laughs> And it was what took me out of my senior year at UCLA. But I learned so much right. about the business I wanted to be in. Right. 
you know, I just figured, okay, this is what I'm going to do. Yeah. Yeah. So you were writing music before that. Were you like the music part and the lyrics or? Okay. Yeah. I, I have a bunch of, so I, about 12 years ago or 10 years ago, I did a, uh, a CD of, of included about nine songs that I'd written and four that other from other writers that I just loved just to feed my soul. Yeah. I just wanted um, on whatever that is, vinyl or whatever. Yeah. Um, so I've always enjoyed writing. And, and along the way, I had these few, just a handful of really bucket list events that I, where I had an opportunity to write lyric for a film score wow. or a project. I wrote lyrics for Burt Bacharach at one, one point. And so I've had a chance to dabble in that, you know, along the way, but I haven't had to rely on it as my okay. living. Okay. Well, songwriting fascinates me. I know one other songwriter and it's, incredible to me how you guys can hear music in your head (laughs) and like start putting words to it you know I mean I think it it's fascinating to me probably because I can't do it with beans Um, but is that something that you just always remember doing or was there one specific thing in your childhood that sort of brought you into writing music and lyrics well I I think you know i the 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 artists that were big artists when I was like in high school were pretty much um, Peggy Lee and Sinatra and those you know those um, I can't remember who who all of the other artists were but I I always listened to music and loved music and I think I was just drawn to sitting at the piano and and writing it and for me um, writing a song happens at the piano okay. I kind of that the words and the music kind of come together. Writing a lyric for another composer is um, is is different, and it happens two ways. Like the the first um, film music that I got to write the lyrics for was a film called On Any Sunday, and it was sort of a documentary, a Bruce Brown documentary about motorcycling of all things. Huh. But Steve McQueen was the the attraction of in course. the film, and. Um, and I had I had ridden on a motorcycle once when I was engaged to a vice cop in in college briefly, and I'd ridden a motorcycle with my brother who had one. On, I was on the back of it, but other than that, I didn't know anything about motorcycle riding. But for some reason, I I must have captured the vibe because uh, the composer Dominic Frontieri had seen some of my songs and gave me the chance to write this, and they liked the lyric. And just coincidentally, that film has kind of become iconic in the motorcycle community. I've I've done about three interviews in the last couple of years wow. with people with people who just discovered who the singer was because oh. we never got we never got credit for the singing. We got I got credit for writing the lyrics, you know. Okay. Um, so that was a fun project, and that that happened. I wrote the lyric. I think I think I wrote the lyric first and then Don Roth. I can't really remember specifically, but um, most often the lyrics I've written for other people have, have been setting a lyric to a melody. Okay. Already- and, and when you're writing a song, I mean, they're kind of like mini stories, right? You, you kind mm-hmm. of have to have a story arc in them. Yeah. It's, it's funny. Most, most of the songs that I've written were, you know, heartbreaking <laughs> love songs. Um, uh, except for one that I can remember, but there, they were, uh, well, there were a couple that weren't, but, 
but they they always came out of an actual emotion that I was living through at the moment. You know, the songs um, that that were written for projects obviously have to be shaped around those projects. Sure, sure. But you knew so you've sort of made like mini stories or written written mini stories throughout the years. Um, but is I saying that is that your first book that like full book that you've written? It is. Okay. Um, I actually, I put together a couple of collections of poetry about 10 or 12, well, no, longer, 13, 12, 13 years ago, uh, of poems that I had written. That I, And this was with a local a publisher here in in uh, the Los Angeles area that that did self-publishing. And I just did it because I, I wanted to be able to gift it to family sure. and friends. I never market it. But, but this is actually the first, and I've had... I have had uh, short stories and fiction, flash fiction, and a personal essay, and some poetry land in literary journals mm. and in a couple of hard copy um, collections. But this is the first book that I wrote. Book? Do you find? Did you find it a very different process, or did you find it? How, how did you find that between short fiction or short writing to well? Well, the, the the short fiction, you know, I'm I'm terrible about submitting stuff. Um, I my 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 passion for writing. I finally gave myself the gift of of pursuing it in a more serious way uh, by going to the Iowa University of Iowa writing workshops. And I went what? every summer. So when did you go yeah. there? That's like everyone's yeah. dream. <laughs> it's my dream. Yeah. This was the, the uh, what I did was <laughs> I accidentally applied to the writer's program, the MFA regular, because I was writing a note to inquire about the, the writing summer writing festival workshop, <laughs> which you don't have to submit to get into, you know, but I, and then I got a response back and they said, please send blah, blah, blah poems. And so I did. And I got a letter from, um, oh, what is that amazing man, the Frank Con Conroy, the, the man that ran the writing program for a while there, um, that I was accepted into the program. But that wasn't what I was trying to do <laughs> at the time because I couldn't stay away from L.A. long enough to do that. Oh, okay. So I, I, but I did finally get into the writing workshops and I went back every summer for 20 summers. Um, this These last couple of years would have been my 21st and 22nd summer if they hadn't been canceled right. because of that terrible thing called Corona. <laughs> yes, yes. And while while I was there, that's when you know I would just go for a couple of weeks and and be a writer, and I didn't have to think about session schedulings or anything. And and a lot of the courses that I took were generative, so I would work with uh, writing work prompts and stuff. And most of the short stuff that I've sent off came primarily out of those workshops. Some of it, the poetry, was just my own. Mm -hmm. But the best talk that I ever saw there, they had what they call the 11s lectures in the morning. And each week that one of the uh, instructors who was doing a work, leading a workshop would give a presentation. And one morning, this gentleman walked out with a cardboard box that was about two feet long and a foot wide, and it was jammed with envelopes. And he said, until you get this many rejection notes back, you haven't even tried. Oh, <laughs> And and I have not. I'm I, I'm terrible about submitting. So I, you know, I get discouraged if I sit down and say, okay, I'm going to send these three songs out to a, a few places, and I don't hear back, yeah. or I get a we loved your writing, but we it doesn't work here. So the book was something that 
I was determined, and I, I'm so grateful for the encouragement of friends um, and family. Uh, I, you know, when you do those workshops, mm-hmm. you get to know people and what they do, and and so often when folks learned that I'd worked in the music business so long, they say, "Oh, you've got to write a book." So it was in the back of my head, okay. but and I had written chapters along the way that were maybe part of a memoir workshop or something, but the pandemic period of time when things just locked down. It was a wonderful time for me to go through all the material that I had and and try to organize it and expand it and add. And I had two wonderful writers that um, I'm so grateful for. One was Gordon Menninga, who taught, he, he had headed the writing program at Coe College, mm-hmm. but he also taught workshops in the summer at, at the University of Iowa. And he was so encouraging always. He was the one that encouraged me to send off my first submission. And I got a note back the next day oh, wow. that it had accepted. Nice. So I was grateful to him. But um, uh, so he he looked through the memoir, made a few suggestions. And then another wonderful writer, Laura Munson, who's had several, she's had two very successful books. I did a workshop with her in Montana. And we kind of started talking about the memoir. Mm. But when I was at the point of wrapping it up, um, I sent it to her and she sent me back comments and um, she encouraged me to to put more of being in the moment in the book, you know, in conversations and stuff, which sometimes when you're writing, you you kind of get into this happened and then this happened and then that happened. And so that right. was very helpful. Yeah, you always sort of need someone to give you feedback on it, right? Yes, absolutely. Especially something so personal. I mean, and you have... I'm sure many, many more stories than what's in this book. So did you, did you find it difficult to sort of choose what to put in there? Cause I've heard from many memoirists that that's their hardest <laughs> thing. Well, it, it is, it, it was hard. And I keep thinking, I remember stories that I, I didn't remember to put in the book. And sometimes that I have to scratch my head and say, wait a minute, did I put that in the book? <laughs> yes. But yeah, there are there are stories that'll pop into my brain, and I thought like, maybe I better write part two sometime. <laughs> yeah. So you you spent really the um, lockdown putting putting words on paper and getting this together. I mean, just two years, and and it came out. I mean, it's published in October, so it only yeah. took two years. Well, it it I a lot of it was already written, Kat. I, I had done, you know, I had done some workshops along the way and I'd saved a chapter or two. I, I have everything in my computer. Mm-hmm. So I I would run across things and, and think, okay, I'm, I'm gonna develop this chapter and then I'm gonna I, I talk about the same thing in several chapters that I found. So it was a matter of trying to I didn't always succeed, but trying to get that material only just in that one chapter. And uh-huh. then and I and I found myself, you know, I'm sure that this is true for a lot of people at, at, to reach the later years. And if they've done something all their life that they love, and it's it really, and for the last 25 years of my life, up until about two years ago, I I was single. I still live alone, and um, so my my work and my singer community really became my family mm. kind of. And when 
when things started to change, as they do, you know, especially in this business, I, I'm remarkably lucky to have lasted as long as I did. But I would see posts on Facebook for projects where someone else had contracted the choir for a composer that I'd worked with a lot. And it was painful. Mm. You know, it was like not being invited to the party. Yeah. Uh, uh, we didn't used to do that in the early days. We were very careful not to talk about other jobs among our colleagues, right. you know. And now it's it's just out there. So it was hard. And when the pandemic started, you didn't see that every day because it, it couldn't happen. And it gave me a chance to kind of step back a little bit and say, oh, my God, I have so much to be grateful for. It's 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 I've had my turn, you know. Mm. And it also uh, it was a wonderful time to focus on the book. But I found myself writing a little bit in the beginning about those feelings of, you know, is it over? Is it wound down? And and how do I feel about it? And so th- that is expressed in a couple of the early chapters in the book. And then I go back and start with childhood and work mm. my way forward. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is a, both of the industries that we work in, I think creative industries change and I think they're changing even quicker <laughs> these days. Technology is is doing it all and, and social media and Right. Yeah. So this is this is really a, a memoir about your life. You wouldn't say that it's it's um I mean it's called a memoir, but it's not at all sort of showing people how to get into the business, as you would say. No, and i and you know, I'll tell you why it, it's it's not in that way. It's more of a of a history mm. of the business and how it has changed over the last 50 years. Um, I can, I, I get calls and outreaches t- today still from young people that want to get into the business. And I can tell them who the busy contractors are and make suggestions and tell them how important the union is, which it it really is. It makes the difference of, of, of survival mm. for a, a long time time and it you know brings you the benefits and you don't have to negotiate your own contracts they're just out there right so i can help in that way but in terms of of you know i i i heard recently that tiktok is where a lot of recording artists are getting started and discovered okay so it's very different that is very different (laughs) there and there's a whole gosh the world is changing i think it's it's really important for people to write their memoirs or write their experiences because the world, like my kids' world, is going to be so starkly different from yes. the 1960s, 70s. Like I, they ask me questions, and to them, I can see in their eyes, like how very far away that feels for them. You know, I oh mean, they were born God. after September 11th. So they mm-hmm. celebrate that, and they're kind of like, that's very distant for me where I, you know, we all have very vivid memories of that day. Mm-hmm. Um, of and so their, their life is going to be so different and the technology is going to be different. The job opportunities are going to be different. And it's important to realize not so long ago, it was completely, it, it wasn't the same. There was no TikTok. Yes. The absolutely. work was different. Yes, the the world was different, and you know we we well I long 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 before you, but we studied history when we were going through school and everything, and history was progressing at a slower pace mm. over the centuries. But now it's just like, I mean, there's so much that we got to do something about, and we better wake up about the environment and the and the world peace challenges and all of it that that is causing so much grief. And yeah. Tr- you know, it's 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 
I pray to God that the younger generation is more on top of it than my generation has been. Unfortunately, they're on TikTok. So. <laughs> yeah, <right. Well. laughs> no, we have more faith in that. <laughs> um, so how how did you transition from singing? So we left off sort of like your touring. Um, mm-hmm. And then, I mean, your the title of your book is I Sang That From the Sound of Music to the Simpsons to South Park. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I know the Simpsons in South Park. I know the sound of music because I grew up funny compared to everybody else. Um, but how how were those transitions in your life? Because those must have, those are very starkly different. Well, they happened over a period of time. Sure. The, the very the first film score that I worked on was How the West is How How the West was won, and it was the first cin- uh, Cinerama film, I think, and that was 1961, and. Um, and then I just, you know, our our business is a community kind of and of networking. Not that you consciously go out and network, but if you're in, if you're singing in a group and you're standing next to somebody and that person sings really well and reads the music really well, someone might ask you, "Gee, do you know what a good alto I'm?" Can't, and you you recommend that person. Mm. So, um, and that happened for me. People would would recommend me, and I'd have a chance to fill in maybe once in a while for some some uh, one singer in particular who was really more of my mother's generation, but she was still singing beautifully. Um, Luli Jean Norman was her name. She sang the da 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 on Star oh, Trek. Oh yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, and she, once in a while, if she couldn't make a session, people began to call me because I had a we had a similar sound. Mm. So that kind of work grew. Um, in the '60s, variety television was going on, and I worked on the Danny Kay show for three seasons. I love Danny Kay. <laughs> oh, he was amazing! I got some great stories about him and uh, Red Skelton, and and then the Smothers Brothers. And I had gone to high school with the Smothers Brothers, but they'd moved before we all got out of high school. Okay. So I didn't. Um, and, um, and, and then and in the late 60s into the 70s, commercial work began to move more out to California. It had been primarily in New York and Chicago, but all of a sudden we were getting a lot of commercial work. And that was... Um, wonderful and then the, the film work grew and i never wanted to uh and and well you know talking about the different styles the sound of music i think was what was that in the early 70s or late 60s it was late 60s i think it's late 60s yeah um that was traditional wonderful music and we were the 12 uh, singing nuns were off camera we recorded it at rca studios we sang for the people who were on camera um, and then Sound of Music, I mean, uh, The Simpsons, I had done some film work for Danny Kay along the way. I'd contracted some of his early films, the vocals for Edward Scissorhands and uh, Beetlejuice. And the, so when he got the opportunity to write this little main title for some little video thing that Fox was doing, we did it. You never know whether those <laughs> things are going to go or not. And that main title has been airing for 33 years now. I was just going to say, hasn't it been like 30 years? And for many years, for the first 28 years on the show or 29, actually for me, 30 years, um, I was the vocal contractor. So when there was a little funny song for the village people to sing or something, I got to do it. Or if they needed a little sound alike for their end credits, I would, I got to do some solo stuff for them. Um, 
it, it was a wonderful connection. And I did the same thing with Family Guy. We sang the main title for that. And it's been airing now, I think, 13 years. Right. It was still with and so the the the, uh, the music business kind of evolved, and the style of music evolved, and the new opportunities evolved. But but what session singers are known for is their um, their musical skill, their sight reading skill, their ability to adapt to different styles of music. Okay. So you kind of move along with it, you know, if you're fortunate. And I never wanted to be, I never wanted to do vocal contracting, which is the the person that knows the community and pulls hires the singers, puts together choirs for composers or projects. I never wanted to do that because it felt so political to me. Mm. And I thought if I did that, the other contractors wouldn't want to work with me. And well, that was not the case. And about 20 years into the singing business, I did start to do some contracting. <laughs> I'm sure it's what's kept me going so long. <laughs> well, it, it sounds like um, session singers get to experiment a lot and like get to see different things. As you said, you're kind of known for being able to adapt. Whereas like if you become the Lauren Bacall or you become the big name, you really have to embrace that one brand, right? Where your life sounds like fun. Like you get to sort of <laughs> dabble <laughs> in different things. Kat, you're so right. It, it's, um, and I, I've often thought about that. I thought, okay, if you'd, if you'd become a record artist in the 60s, you would have had a five-year career, most likely. Um, and, and in this journey, my gosh, I, I've gotten to work with some of the most amazing people in the world. I've, I've contracted choirs for John Williams, who is just incredible. I was um, the choral director for the Oscars for about 20 years. Oh, I had wow. worked on the show. I had worked on the show for other singer contractors in earlier years, years, and a couple of shows more recently. But that was fabulous because I got to be a part of putting the show together. You know, they would do all the songs that were nominated from films and and scores, and they were often of many different styles. You right. Know? Um, we did a we did a song from um, South Park on camera one year when the song "Lame Canada" was nominated. <laughs> I and, remember that. And, oh gosh. And and um the wonderful gentleman that just passed away not too long ago, the wonderful comedian that was in um Mark and Mork and Mindy that Rob Rob William. Um oh my this I can is my see brain. I can see his face and I can't remember yeah. his name. Anyway, he, he did the lead role on camera, it was fun. Um Robin Williams. Robin Williams. Oh my gosh. <laughs> like, mm -hmm. Trying yeah. hard to figure out. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it sounds like you get to do a lot of work with different names and knowing a lot of people, this collaboration behind the scenes. And um, mm -hmm. yeah, I mean, I'm sure that there's a there's a way to be grateful for every life we have. Right. Um, mm -hmm. But I don't I don't think you missed out on fun by not becoming that that famous person in the 60s. And, you know, a lot of them ended tragically. So let's be glad that, <laughs> no, that you kept going and you, kept, and you wrote us a book all about, I mean, you have some really, really interesting stories. You have gone from the 60s, which was a time in America where women were treated a certain way, right? You have mm -hmm. those experiences. I mean, one of your first stories is being told to go, get married <laughs> like, 
that, that person you could you could rip that person apart on Twitter these days. They could get canceled, you know. You know, and I just I, I don't please don't let me get you off track because I, I want to hear what your questions and thoughts are. But it was so funny. This is not in the book, but I my husband and I were married on the second con of tour. I was 20 years old when we got married. Oh wow. Uh, and I got pregnant right away with my daughter. I was 21 when she was born. But um, I, I went to a session with him. He he was also a singer, a very excellent singer, and he wanted to be another Andy Williams, but that never happened. But um, we were at a session where he was singing a demo of a song for a songwriter, and and I was with him, and they and they it, the the wife of the songwriter said, "Oh, did you used to be a singer?" And I was twenty one years old at the time. Oh so when you transition from the wife and mother, um, it was over in those days in yeah. terms of what you know they thought. So you did all of this being a mother as well. Like that that sounds like a lot. Well, it was, it it was, and I and my daughter is the one who suffered because of that. Because I, my husband and I were divorced. Her father and I were divorced when she was about four, and that was about the time when things were really starting to get busy for mm. me. I was doing the K show. I was doing a lot of record sessions, and and um, you know, and she didn't have brothers and sisters, so she was alone much of the time with caregivers. With I had wonderful. Uh, caregivers for her. We were lucky, but, but it was, it was hard. And she told me in her adult life that she felt invisible when mm. she was little. Yeah. And it's, it's hard to make up for that. You know, there's not much you can do after the fact. Well, I think that's, that's the burden mothers carry, you know, like whether we stay at home or we go to work, it's, yeah. it, feel, it feels like it's never enough and we definitely make our mistakes. I have Daughters as well, been told. <laughs> they have not waited till adulthood to tell me. <laughs> oh. Oh. <laughs> uh, but what I find interesting too is um, you you are a singer, you're a musician, and yet part of the thing that seems to have filled you creatively is to do an entirely different creative outlet, which is writing. And I know you write, you know, songs, so that's kind of, you know, that's writing, but then I because I advocate a lot for writers to go out of their writing closet, as I call it, because most of us have like a corner in our house and yes. to indulge in something that's creative, that's not writing, you know. Mm. So did you specifically seek out something that would fulfill you or maybe give you rest? And you found that in writing or um, what are your thoughts yeah. on that? Well, it, what? It, um I I really had both passions, Kat, very early in life. I was writing poems when I, as soon as I was old enough to write. And I can remember going around the corner to the gentleman that lived in the neighborhood where my, where my, the lady that was looking after me when I was really little lived. And he would staple together these little paper things, little books, and then I would go home and write the book. And so I've always loved writing. I've always loved poetry. Um, I even found while I was digging through these date books and stuff, I found a journal with stories, stories that I'd written when I was about 10. And one was called something like St. Peter and Petrol. And Petrol was the representative of, from the from below the devil. <laughs> and he was letting people into heaven. And they had a big conversation about what they did. It sounds um, like the oil but, industry, the Petrol. <laughs> right, <laughs> Which, right. Yeah. <laughs> 
an early early insight. Yes. But, um, so I've I've always loved writing, and I um, I've always written poems hmm. for years. I and and when I traveled with Bert Bacharach, I always you know I would carry a journal because I was uncomfortable sitting in restaurants by myself. So if I sat there writing, it looked like well she's doing something. Yes. This is, and um, I've always kept journals. I've always written poems. I've always written down my dreams. So when I got into the to the uh, and, and I also I haven't uh, another writing project by the way that I actually started in 1985 as a self defense of, with the psychiatrist that I was seeing who was crazier than I was. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> and and that's a novella length piece that's that's basically the interaction between the, uh, the Mrs. Billingsley and her therapist but it's there's some magical realism in it mm. and it was kind of a way of expressing my my mental journeys along the way so it, it's always been a part of what mm -hmm. i did but i until until i sent those first submissions off which probably was 13 or 14 years ago i never really tried to do anything with the writing and i when i started in the, in my work life I had sort of a series of five-year plans. I was, I said, okay, the first five years, I'm going to try to do on-camera stuff if I can. I'll audition for commercials. I'll do whatever. And and then when I'm 24 and I'm too old for that, <laughs> on to the off-camera stuff and I'll do session singing. And then five years later, but writing was way down the road because mm. I figured nobody would care if you were gray-haired and stuff when you... So I... It's not something that I, I really ever focused on, um, but I think, I, I think that what's your suggestion to your followers of of finding other creative endeavors is great because it it gives you a fresh view of what you're doing, mm, kind of. Okay. Sometimes you can you can you can transition. You can. Uh, um, uh, I, I just I think it's great. I, I wish I were better at explaining how they relate. But you know, another um, another passion of mine that I started to develop in my late fifties was photography. Oh, and I took some camera some workshops. And for my sixtieth birthday, I gave myself three presents. One was to go to New York and do a cabaret symposium because I hadn't done that much per live performing. You know um on my own on my own with my own name the second was to do a photography workshop uh in the loire valley which i'd, I'd taken some classes prior to and the the uh third was to start the iowa writing workshops in iowa so all of those have sort of mixed together i've done some photographic exhibits where i've used the captions for the film for the photos were they were lines from some of the poetry from the okay, poetry yeah and um and the photographs i did a series of photographs of film composers at work in the studio when and it was not a day when i was there to sing i was just there to photograph them and those have been exhibited in the the, the motion picture cat or yeah Academy of Motion Picture Arts inside the, the business building okay. there, and several other places. But so they've all crisscrossed kind of yeah. in the material that they've dealt with. But I think each each artistic pursuit that you have kind of broadens your whole view of things. Yeah, I I find it very encouraging. Um, you're not the first one who I've talked to that has start, sort of started a new passion 
um, later in life. And I think we're still so obsessed in America with youth, with the 20 year olds. And it's great to encourage them, you know, in their life, but Mm -hmm. we are living a long time. And I, you know, I think a lot of our fears are like at 50, we're too old. At 24, we were too old. So of course we're too old at 50 or at 40. Um, Mm -hmm. And I work with several writers who have to battle that a lot, that they're too old to do this. I'm like, no, um, you actually so know I, something. <laughs> oh my gosh, I, I'm amazed to hear that because I, and, and, it, and it makes perfect sense. I guess for, if you're pursuing a major publisher, they want to know you're going to be able to write best-selling novels for the next 30 years. And so they don't want you to start at 50. But um, I, I never thought about writing as as restrictive in terms of age and yet, I'm so grateful for Google because now when I sit down and try to write something, I, I'm scratching my head for words. Mm. That didn't used to happen a few years ago. So I'm very grateful that that I can find my way into remembering this name or that name or, you know. Yeah, oh, whatever. well, me too. <laughs> I was <laughs> trying to write for this whole other project. So I'm like, I just watched this movie and I can't remember this name, this person's oh. name. So. <laughs> it's, it's everyone. But I, I think it's really important to to know that, um, you know, life it doesn't end at 24 or 40 or 50 or 60. Like we can – pursue new things our curiosity we're not too old to be curious you know every every time yeah absolutely that's so so important to remember um the more things we learn a little bit about the more curious we get about well i want to know more about right i think we should all do a cabaret at 60 i think there you go (laughs) (laughs) so you know no 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 you you tell Oh, I was just going to tell you something tragic and funny. I mean, I I have found some recordings that I did and a ton of lead sheets and stuff from my early songwriting. And I found a couple of demos that I cannot swear that I wrote. I I think I wrote the lyric, but I I can't remember whether it was a Tom Snow was a writer that once set one of my poems to music so beautifully and it was not written like a lyric it was written like a poem about my sister in our childhood and he just wrote it gorgeously didn't change a word and this one may be another one of his songs because i know i'm not playing the piano on this demo but it's so i don't want to put it out there as something i wrote and then find out oh my god i didn't (laughs) write this (laughs) but it's um (laughs) it's a vindictive song about it's called baby was a dancer and it, it's it's the story of danced into his heart quickly. He romanced her. He had well rehearsed his part, uh, and so the story goes. And yeah. Then, and she, and uh, he finally gets tired of her, but she she goes away, and then he wishes she hadn't gone away. And you know that's a song that that was an unusual topic in the seventies or so. Yeah. Um. But now I don't remember what made me think of that. Something that you were about to ask, probably. <laughs> well, I can't remember either, but that's all right. Um, you have these demos, though. You have these agendas that you've talked about in your journals. Um, how important was that to have those references as you were writing this book? Well, I think I hadn't really thought about them as as uh, you know as being part of the process until I found myself wondering. Now, wait a minute, what what artists were we singing with in the? 
sixties or whatever. And and then that's what made me dive into the boxes in the garage. And I didn't realize that I had all of these calendars. Um that the the unfortunate thing was that in those days I was not I was just showing up and singing. So I would have the name of the studio and the name of the contractor and the time of the session, but not always the project mm. or the artist. Or right. Um, and then I would write when when the check came in, I would make a note of the amount that we were paid, which was stunningly small in those days, <laughs> <laughs> like three dollars and ninety seven cents after taxes. But um, uh, it, it, they were very very useful when I realized that that they were there, and it helped me understand. I, I read some of the journals about my travel years with uh, with Bert and with with uh, Ray Conniff and those were helpful to read to just remind me mm. of how it felt either in the moment. Yeah. Yeah. I think journaling is, is, is great. Even if it just helps you get through the day or the moment. So true. Yeah. I'm a very big advocate of journaling. I'm not sure anyone will read my journals ever, but um, <laughs> so how much of it when you're writing your memoir, cause there's in the writing world, at least there's, there's a lot of um, advice that people give writers and, you know, you're, you should sit down and you should write, but I'm a big advocate of getting up and thinking <laughs> as you, before you go back to writing, because probably because that's my process. So how much do you think for you was sitting down and writing actual words out versus trying to remember, you know, reminiscing, reading things like how, how sort of was that process? Well, in this particular project, the book, um, I, I I can remember being seated at the computer writing something and then getting up and going into the other room to look for a particular journal, a particular year. So it was kind of all mixed together. Right. I I have beaten myself up always for not being disciplined like some writers are. They would get up and they sit from 7 to 10 in the morning, and no matter what happens, that's where they are. I've never been able to do that. I've, I've mostly been propelled by whatever I'm thinking about or whatever I'm – but um, I did try, and it was very helpful to be in touch with, with Laura and with uh, Gordon – that my writer mentor kind of colleagues mm-hmm. as um, I was getting some feedback from them. I was right. getting, you know, this works, this doesn't. So that caused me to go dive back in, okay. which I am not very good about doing. I'm not good at editing. Once it's on the page, it's kind of there in stone, but I was able to really go back and expand mm. and, and add the conversation that happened there or add the, the, how I felt about that moment, you know, so that was um that was very helpful just to to broaden what you are writing about uh as you are encouraged to do so right. I guess. And did you do that um sort of sending them parts of the book or did you send them the whole book and then I, I sent them the whole book. Okay. I sent them and 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 uh both of them sent back comments chapter to chapter, you know, mm. this worked really Oh, this is I love this chapter. I want to know more about blah blah here. Right. You know? Um so that it was so helpful right. to have that feedback. Yes, yeah. feedback is very important. <laughs> I, say, I, I, I say this all the time. <laughs> yeah, it really is. And 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 as wonderful as Zoom is, and it's enabled the world to keep going during these last two years, for me, even I, I serve on a lot of boards and committees and stuff for big unions. And even for those, 
as as well as for the feedback from the writing, it's a different thing to be in a room with people and get the feel the vibe of their what they're thinking by the look on their face mm. or finger tapping or whatever it yes. is. You know, um, I'm I'm looking forward to being back in those workshops again. I've I've done a couple of Zoom workshops, and you know, it's it's better than stepping away from it altogether. But it's um, I'm Not anxious to get. All right, so will you go back this next summer if all things have settled? Yeah, I would, mostly because I'd like to do a book reading at the Prairie Lights bookstore there in Iowa City. Oh, <laughs> maybe I should go to Iowa. Yes. Is Iowa? <laughs> just, probably to the just that way. So got to go yeah. that way. Um, but, you know, they, they have, this is a wonderful little city that, because it's so renowned as a writer's right. haven. It's got um, plaques, brass or, you know, iron plaques in the sidewalks for the two main streets of excerpts from novels oh. and, the, and the author's name and stuff. It's just, and there's a house there that Kurt Vonnegut lived in. Of course. That's now available for rent, you know, and um, it began to feel like my hometown because I'd go back and spend sometimes two, two or three weeks there a summer. Oh, okay. So I would love to go back just to be there. I think not, I'm going to have to know. convince my husband to give me more allowance. <laughs> yeah, yes. you gotta do it. You gotta do it. Every everybody support this show and send me to Iowa. <laughs> I'll find it. Out. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. So, um, your book is called well, your first of several books, right? Because we're gonna get that that novella. I need to read that novella about the therapist. <laughs> that sounds very Virginia Woolf. Like we need we need that out in the world. Um, so the book is called I Sang That From the Sound of Music to Simpsons to South Park and Beyond, a memoir from Hollywood by Sally Stevens. And we'll have the links in the show notes. Um, is there any way to hear? Do you have any audio with this? I don't yet, but I'm, I'm hoping to do that. Yeah, I'd like to do it myself. I've, I've done enough voiceover work that I, I think I could do it. I think that books, when, when the author reads them, you get a slightly deeper yeah, for them. sure. Oh, well, we're looking forward to that as well. But we'll have the links in the show notes that you guys can read, and then you can follow Sally and, um, you know, meet her in Iowa in 2023. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much, Sally, for coming on the Pencils and Lipstick. Oh, thank you so much, Kat, for inviting me. It's really, really been fun. Thank you. You're still listening. Since you are, could you do me a favor and head over to the app that you're listening to this episode on and hit the subscribe button and then rate and review the show? It would really help the Pencils and Lipstick podcast get out into the world. And if you're enjoying the podcast, well, then there might be more people out there who would enjoy it as well. If you want to find out more about me, you can head over to catcaldwell.com. I have my story over there, my books, my interactive journals, my one-on-one -on -one coaching information, and information on my creative writing community membership group. If you're looking to write a book or you are a writer and you just want to find out more about how to write, how to publish, how to format, how to market, and all the things that go into being an author these days, check out the membership group. There is a 14 free day trial that you can try it out, get into the mastermind, find out all the goodies that we are talking about in the group. I would love to see you there.